Hello and welcome to the Plato's Academy Center podcast, where we feature interviews from the latest and greatest authors and academics in modern philosophy. Today's episode features author of the recently re-released classic, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience, Nancy Sherman. This interview comes to you courtesy of Adam Piercy of Modern Stoicism. So Nancy, thank you very much for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a pleasure. So today, Nancy, we were going to talk about your new book that's uh, available now called Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. Um, And this book is available now. I think it's, as you were saying, it's literally just arrived on your doorstep today. So uh, I'm I'm very excited to let people uh, uh, know that they can pick this up. And I have had a chance to flip through this myself. I guess... uh, If I wanted to start in general, I would like to start with a very interesting opening kind of discussion that you have with the reader, which is the discussion about um, this great Stoic revival that is going on right now. Um, Can you describe it for us? And why do you think the Stoic revival is happening at sort of this time? There is a great Stoic revival. Uh, The ancient philosophers have always been, you know, more accessible than some of the others who do well Kant is not the easiest person to read an enlightenment philosopher um, or some of the modern philosophers uh, contemporary philosophers my peers and those I studied but ancient philosophers at least when they talk about ethics um, are fairly accessible and the Stoics most accessible of them all now not necessarily the ancient Greek philosophy uh, philosophical Stoics uh, whose record we only have in bits and pieces but the Roman Stoics, we have in greater chunks. We have Marcus's Meditations, Epictetus's Discourses, one small bit of it, the uh, handbook, the Enchiridion, written in Greek, though, not in Latin, and um, four books of the Discourses, and lots of Plutarch, um, and lots of Cicero, the latter two not Stoics, but they're accessible, and they always were accessible. They were on bedside tables for Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington read them. Uh, They were in the air then, and they've come back into the air. So why now? Um, Some of it is that uh, there's there's been a sort of recent hunger for self-help. And so I think some of this fits into that, uh, ways of building your strength, um, becoming uh, more resilient. Um, We certainly have been through the most trying times I've been through, uh, through this pandemic um, and with racial reckoning in this country um, and and abroad. Um, And so the idea of having tried and true ancient lessons, I think, is appealing to many. In addition, many of other practices they've used, Eastern practices, um, I meditate um, in... uh, um, veg- uh, um, meditation and um, um, you know sort of quieting the mind and, and many do other forms of psychotherapy as a kind of meditation this has a little bit of everything in it and so I think it, it appeals in that way in addition we now have ways of uh, reaching large numbers of people through podcasts such as this one uh, through other kinds of email 
blasts and blurts and whatnot. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's accessible. It's out there. And people are really looking for a way of centering themselves and a way of also finding some equanimity in pretty stormy times. I don't think that's the only story. I think the Stoics actually have a much deeper story that sometimes gets missed. And that is anyone that writes, teaches ancient ethics as a sort of a philosopher as I am, um, but who studies the texts or was one of the original ancient ethicists knows that ancient ethics is not about me. It's primarily about us and it's about our flourishing. I mean, it, it might be about my goodness and my happiness, but my goodness and my happiness depends upon thinking about those with whom we're in a community and who we develop relationships with. And those relationships can be fragile. They can leave us vulnerable. Um, we know about that in a pandemic where there's enormous amount of grief. So the Stoics were thinking about uh, me, not me <laughs> in terms of self-interest, but me in a sense of the best person I can be who's living in a world in which we're trying to uh, make that world somewhat better at the same time that we uphold our um, what, we, what we think are best in terms of our, our ideals and standards. So that's what appeals it to me about them. Um, but I think everyone picks up a little different piece in turning to the Stoics. I definitely agree with you on the uh, the little pieces that come out, as well as this interesting sort of, um, you know, realization that Stoicism is about me in regards to the us, me in regard to this larger concept. You know, Marcus Aurelius has this great quote about what's what's good for the hive is good for the bee and sort of vice versa in that way. And, you know, I think it comes out a lot um, when it comes to discussions I've had with people who have been introduced to the philosophy and whatnot. Yeah, I was just going to say something. So there's a very graphic image that Marcus has that isn't always picked up by those who turn to Marcus Aurelius for self-humbling or for um, his status um, um, as, a, as a warrior. And that is that he's a warrior who's writing, a warrior, a, a supreme leader, um, an emperor, who's writing on the shores of the Danube uh, during the Germanic campaigns, first century, common era. And he asks himself to picture what he must have seen earlier in the day. And, and that's what I hear a lot about in my work with, with military folks, and that is the detritus of the battlefield. He sees limbs and arms that are separated from torsos. And he says, this is what a person makes of him or herself or themselves when they're separated from each other. And that's essentially saying that we're part of a larger humanity. The Stoics viewed this in terms of a, a, a cosmos. They um, picked up on the earlier uh, um, notion of, of Diogenes uh, that we are citizens of the universe. Um, but they really make it a, a notion. We're, we're getting out of the Greek city-state, the palace, and we're expanding outward, and we're connected. 
And when you think of that image, that's pretty graphic. And it, it gives you a sense of, you know, sort of the unity of us. And in a world in which we're very diverse and we're trying to, uh, um, I think, overcome our separateness and loneliness uh, during this pandemic and also overcome the fear we have of people that are different from us or um, try to change some of the impressions we have that may be impulsive and not particularly well-grounded. Um, the Stoics offer a lot to think about. They actually give you real techniques for trying to correct some of those distorted images and impressions we have. I think what's, that's one of their real strengths. It's not just connecting outward, as you say, the self is, is uh, and the good is larger than just me. It's about us. But they also give you real tools for re- uh, reabsorbing the world so that how you see the world and some of those quick impulsive impressions you have of what's out there can be shifted a bit by hitting a pause button so you don't always assent to the first snap judgment that you have about what you saw out there. And I think that's really um, part of the, uh, the, the journey they take us on for training our minds in ways that we can be fair and more just in the world. So, I mean, you touched briefly on uh, some of the historical precedents with uh, Marcus Aurelius and whatnot. I mean, there's an interesting parallel between the lives of many of the Stoics and what we're going through today uh, as a world, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. And you talk about this briefly uh, at the beginning, and then I think a little bit later as well, where in your in your book, where you talk about um, it adds this layer of anxiety for everyone. And so throughout the book, you know, a key theme, of course, from the title right through to the back cover is this theme of resilience. And um, it's interesting because uh, you sort of set out at the beginning of the book to make sure that it's not misunderstood. It's not misinterpreted. You, you sort of correct some of the misinterpretations. And there's a quote I pulled from the book, which is uh, resilience as invincibility is a misguided action. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, resilience is def is definitely, I think for the Stoics is not meant to be invisible, but, but what is it really meant? What is resilience really meant to be to a Stoic? So, yeah, there's a sense of resilience that we often carry around as um, you're, you just can be invincible, invulnerable. Um, you can handle anything. And um, like that word resilience means, it means kind of to bounce back, right? And you can bounce back no matter what. And that somehow you won't be um, diminished or reduced um, in strength or in stamina. So the Stoics do view their training as kind of athletics of the soul. And that's what appeals to many about what they're up to. Hard discipline, imagery of the wrestling match and picking yourself up if you've been pushed down. And no matter how many times you get up and you're in the ring again. And Epictetus has these images a lot. But in reality, we are vulnerable. In reality, the whole reason that the Stoics are writing this stuff is because they know we're so vulnerable. I mean, Seneca, for example, is in the court of Nero, being his speechwriter, and we would call it spin doctor, 
and maybe moral tutor on occasion, but certainly brought into the court through Nero's mother because Seneca is the greatest man of letters of the time. And she had to get him out of Corsica and back into Rome to train her young son, Nero, so that he might become the emperor. And he does. And, you know, and so Seneca is, He's, he knows the, 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 the treachery that Nero's up to and that he may himself, he, Seneca may himself get the short end sometimes. So it's not as if he's invulnerable. He knows he's vulnerable. And he often says in, in some of his writings in the letters, I believe, um, you know, I'm the, I, I'm the doctor, but I'm also, um, I'm in the sick room. I'm the patient. You've come here to a patient's room, to the sick room, meaning I'm treating you, they call it therapy of the soul, you know, psychotherapy. I'm treating you, but I'm treating myself at the same time, giving counsel to myself. And that's because they may have lost a friend in, um, and so grieving. Um, they may feel the threat of political, the political winds that are changing, a constant worry for these individuals. In the case of Epictetus, he's enslaved. And so he suffers firsthand the deprivations of enslavement and he may retreat inside, but inside is not an impregnable citadel. Um, so they are um, coming up in part with uh, ways of thinking of the emotions that allow them to better manage them, but not to be uh, numb. That's the worst thing, to be numb. And so, you know, they may try to um, curb the impulses a bit, um, be less impulsive, think about where you can insert your will or judgment to both change how you evaluate the object out there and both how you react when you evaluate. You know, are you going to think of it as bad as it might as, as it is? And are you going to um, be helpless in the face of it? Or are you going to come up with a better strategy? So they're trying to insert will where they can adapt. I think they think more about resilience as adaptability. That's a much better word than invincibility. It's being adaptive to changing circumstances. They always want you to assess the changing circumstances. And as Seneca sometimes puts it, you know, I'll go out for, uh, I'll go out for a, a, a boat ride or a picnic, whatever his example is, unless it rains. I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll run for office unless I don't get, you know, un uh, unless I, I can't get the pre-election uh, uh, votes. Uh, we call them primaries. The unless is pretty important. And it means that you're alert to the fact that the circumstances could change that require you to come up with a new plan. And so that's preparation, right? It's being flexible and adaptive to changing circumstances. Now, they sometimes think that we can really be ahead of the game, really prepared by having omniscience. We don't. You know, maybe if you're a sage, you do, but none of us are. And, you know, I think of the pandemic in this regard. Um, Anthony, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the um, chief infectious disease officer in the United States, um, you know, said when you're an epidemiologist, you have to kind of be ahead of the game. And you have to give metaphors that uh, tell people about being ahead of the game because you have to be prepared. I'm not sure we were wonderfully prepared in the case of this pandemic, but we, a Stoic is thinking about preparedness 
and what can you do in that regard? And I have some great ideas like pre-rehearsing, anticipating the bads. It, it's sort of a take the shock value out of it a bit and think in advance about what about something bad that might happen. They give the stock example of losing a child, kiss your child goodbye in the morning as if it were the last time. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> I don't think I've ever taught an undergraduate class where my students haven't rolled their eyes and thought, oh my gosh, if I've just left home for college and my parents say that to me, you know, do they still love me? <laughs> I don't <laughs> You know, I don't think that's the lesson we should take, but it's more don't be blindsided. And so here's one way I adapted the lesson. Um, my mom lived to a very ripe age. I mentioned this in Stoic Wisdom in the book. Um, but, you know, in her late 90s, she never wanted to talk about death. And she was in a nursing home and I was responsible for her. Um, and we had regular several uh, bi-weekly visits and several times a week. And I figured at some point we're going to have to talk about death. I didn't quite know how. So I would say to her, mom, remind me, did we sign you up for the immortality plan? Uh, because if we did, it's going to be really expensive. And she would laugh and I would laugh. And I realized I, I, I hit a sweet spot, but maybe I was getting through. And so again, you know, another day of the week when I would come and visit her after her dinner, I would say, remind me, I know you really like it here, but do you like it that much? Have we signed you up for the immortality plan? Because if we did, it's going to be real expensive. It was her way of preparing her, and I have to say myself, for her death, you know, which came um, almost 97 of years of age, but nonetheless came, you know, she wasn't going to live forever. So I think that's a stoic tactic of preparing for the future. Oh, absolutely. I think you're right. And I think, um, I think to me, there's a very healthy amount of preparation that Stoics talk about. They say they, instead of saying, I'm going to do everything in my power to prevent this from happening, they may say, instead of that, I may be able to prevent it from happening, but I may not. And that reverse, that sort of what some people call the reverse clause will allow that will allow the person to kind of go, okay, well, I, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to control what I can control, but ultimately it may not work and it may still happen. And that's just the way that it goes with something I think is extreme as, as death in that sort of example, you know, that's one where we, we don't, there is no way around that. At least at the time of recording this podcast, there isn't. <laughs> and it's sort oh, of a, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of some a of the biohackers wish there were. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. But certainly, you know, instead, you know, we can't control that. So instead, what can we control? As you've sort of already identified, you know, you could you could spend all time talking mor morosely about something like that, or you could instead have fun with it and 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 control it and and take action to it from that perspective. So I totally, I totally see uh, your point of view on that one. I think there's something to add to that. And that's just, sometimes stoicism is uh, portrayed as a philosophy of resignation and a philosophy of inner retreat and political um, retreat that you move inward and you interpret the world um, so that the, triggers of pain really don't hurt or somehow they're not real or the injustice really isn't real. It's just your way of responding to it. 
and what is the only thing that's real, sort of an old Socratic position taken to an extreme, is that you don't commit the injustice yourself. But anything that happens to you or happens around you is nothing to you. Say it's nothing to me. You might interpret Epictetus as saying in the beginning of the, of the handbook. I don't think that's the Stoic view that we need to pick up on, nor do I think it's a modern Stoic view that we ought to endorse. I feel very strongly that the Stoics give you tools for being able to correct and respond some of what you see. I mean, you may see things that are really ugly. Uh, You may see, for example, racial injustice that's really horrific, or management issues in large tech companies, for example, that you feel they're exploitative, where the middle worker gets squeezed out while the angel investors or the or the CEOs make all the big bucks, or I don't know, you name it, um, top-down organizations, you know, that don't aren't fair, or uh, issues of there's of all sorts of um, marginalization of individuals by those in power, and you might just sort of say, um, my control runs out, I can't change it, and so I have to accept it, and I have to accept that it doesn't really. Uh, affect me or bother me and what's in my equanimity uh, is what's key and I can find equanimity. I don't think that's a stoic position. Uh, Certainly not one I want to endorse or as someone who reads texts all the time and and comments on them and writes books on them. I, I think we can do better. I think the stoics give you amazing resources for being able to think about was your judgment of what happened out there and your emotional response, say your anger, your fear, your desire, your distress, was it um, um, grounded? Were you attaching to the correct values? Were there false values that you're attaching to? How do I reassess that? And then come up with a different judgment where you might think it coheres better with grounded truths, um, justified truths, and, or justified beliefs? And do you think that, in addition, how you reacted is the best way to react? I mean, we're all programmed to react through social decorum and whatever our cultures say is reasonable ways to react or our particular silos or echo chambers or the what, whatnot. But, you know, they're giving you ways of analyzing emotional responses and impressions to which we respond emotionally, these uh, what they call impulses, and um, we won't have to get into the details of their account, but that give you footholds for changing things. So you don't just say, control runs out here, can't do anything more, put my hands up, and that's that. I think we're cowardly, in fact, fail in courage if that's where we go. So in that regard, that's, that circles us back to the beginning where the Stoic project is not just about me, but it's about us and an us that connects us to each other in the most humanitarian way of understanding our engagement in this cosmos. They are early cosmopolitans and they are early humanitarians as well. So one of the uh, general 
questions that I receive about this practice, as I call it, or this philosophy, is uh, this: um, there's generally a question around the fact that there's a love of Stoicism within the sort of the Silicon Valley crowd. And you have these misconceptions that kind of take it that way. And people feel, people struggle with it because it's actually um, against what you just described, this uh, cosmopolitan nature, this nature of the us as opposed to the I, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think, why do you think it is so um, important to the Stoic, to the, to the Silicon Valley crowd? And why do you think, um, they see it as this very in this very singular way, when in fact that's actually quite markedly different than how it's uh, really meant to be understood. Good question. I'm not quite sure uh, where and how the life hack thing came to be. My husband is in the computing industry, and he, you might say, uh, knows a lot about hacking because he's a programmer and and um, wrote compilers and operating systems and whatnot. But he did not really know what a life hack was until very recently. So uh, uh, how it, it, it came to, I mean, I actually know the, the origin now, and I mentioned it in the book through an, uh, an O'Reilly conference, I think the idea of life hack came to be. But the idea of, of having a, uh, a workaround or a fix for problems that are technical um, came to be a way of thinking about a workaround or fix for problems that have to do with your own well-being or your own sense of uh, safety, security, psychological safety and security. And that idea of arming yourself a little bit with tools or techniques, you know, is, is important, I think, for individuals who feel they're in big organizations where the people at the top don't necessarily um, think about your well-being. So I get that aspect. I think from the point of view of the, you know, the CEOs, the Jack Dorseys of the world, um, Tim Ferriss's of the world, um, and others, um, or biolife hackers, I think there is a little bit of, you know, two aspects. One is a sense of, I want to live, you know, if you're a biohacker, I want to live long enough to see this product really take off. There's some narcissism in there. Um, you know, I want I want to stick around to see my invention, my software make it. And so um, uh, it's a way of uh, a, um, a life hack for holding on to your life. And that's very unstoic, actually, given what the Stoics think about this facing your mortality, the ancient Stoics, at least. Um, the other aspect is there's often um, there's a certain loneliness of sitting at your desk all day and of the um you know re retreat into a cell in a certain way and 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 certain engineers are often on their own thinking about stuff although not always because there's whiteboards and i think that's been a deprivation right now not being in a you know my children who live in this world somewhat you know not being in a room with a whiteboard is really really hard so, but for some, the idea of, you know, just grinding away is, is tough. And so a certain kind of um, retreat inside is a way of getting strength. There's always been an attraction in Silicon Valley to Eastern religions, you know, of ret um, Eastern retreats um, are not unfamiliar in that crowd. So this is um, now one with a Western stamp. And that, that brings a, an additional imprimatur. It's, it's sort of uh, 
made in the USA or, or made in the cradle of um, American democracy, you might say, Athens or, you know, the expanse of Athens. So I don't really know the whole sociodynamic. I have to just confess, um, you know, there's a lot of different strands and some of it is um, hidden persuaders, used to be an old fashioned term. You get something out there, it gets a certain amount of following um, and it catches on. I think there's one other thing, and that is um, people have always been attracted to heroes and saints. I'm not particularly, but many are. And so um, if you can have a bit of a hagiography of those who are not necessarily religiously attached, but are rather secular, um, a Marcus Aurelius, an Epictetus, Seneca is, you know, I wouldn't say is part of the the, the hero group. Um, Socrates for a long time was, you know, people always think about Socrates. Then you've got a something to attach to a little bit like um, a, um, a figure that you would find in a, in a religion. And so, you know, I'm not sure that's, a, that's um, the best way to approach a practice. As I say, I think you always have to approach practices a bit critically. And, um, you know, leaders um, have followers and followers need leaders, but we all have to be a bit um, uh, intellectually critical as we move through the world. Oh, for sure. And I, and I would heavily agree with that. You know, um, along with Silicon Valley stoicism, there's generally a lot of misconceptions around um, stoicism being related to people who want power or want money or misogyny and things like that. And, and it's, 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 it's a little bit frightening sometimes because I find the practice to be sometimes mis misinterpreted or misused or intentionally misused by people to kind of talk about these things. But so, you know, ultimately I always believe that if you go back to the basics, you're going to find that there's uh, that the key practices will always sort of shine through. So I'm hoping that Silicon Valley will 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 begin to see that more, and it won't be as won't be portrayed as so power hungry as it is now. What do you think, though? Do you think that uh, that stoic that stoicism within Silicon Valley will begin to swing back towards probably more um, to its roots? Well, you know, I think the texts are themselves very easy to read many of them right and that's mm -hmm. go back to the sources um you know I, I i view myself as not so much um spinning my own story but letting you read the sources and if you go back to the sources like take one that's you know be harder to be able to put your hands on in an everyday bookstore but lusonius rufus he says women uh should be given the same education as men Mm -hmm. because they have the same capacity for virtue. This was the teacher of Epictetus. Now, you know, that's kind of got lost in the dialogue, but in it was very loud and clear in Plato's Republic in book five. And again, not always picked up because there's selective, we all are selective interpreters, but sometimes selective interpreters for the status quo of power and often for um, not um, uh, nobler fine reasons or purposes. So in terms of Silicon Valley, I, you know, 
I don't really know. Um, I think there's many different versions of it out there. There's a Jack Dorsey who wants to test himself in terms of taking, you know, ice baths or walking in the cold without a jacket um, and maybe humbling himself or being anxious about uh, whether Twitter or, um, or, or um, Square, I guess, is one of his inventions, um, will make it. And similarly, so maybe Tim Ferriss, who worries about his angel investments. Um, Ryan Holiday, a different story, you know. Um, but they, there's that level. Um, they're in the midst of opulence, um, enormous opulence. And maybe they have to humble themselves a little bit on occasion in the way that Marcus Aurelius had to, or Seneca had to, and actively dissociate with some of the uh, the glitz and glamour and money in order to anchor themselves a bit. Um, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. That's one strand. Um, others um, uh, simply want practices, as you say, meditative practices. And um, being able to reflect at the end of the day with a diary or uh, um, some sort of, you know, maybe artistic sketchbook or something like that is a way to unwind. And I'm certainly all for that. Um, uh, for others, it, it could be that, um, you know, reading a daily pithy bit of wisdom works. But I say, go back to the original text. They're not that hard. That's why they were picked up by everyone. Persons of, you know, of in the political sphere. Um, it was just sort of every man, every man, every woman's reading back when. It was mostly men. But there were copies of, of Seneca, copies of Epictetus, copies of Marcus Aurelius on a, on a bed table regularly. It was something you would pick up straight from the horse's mouth. They're more, more nuanced, more interesting texts. I can't think of anything better to read than Seneca's letters if you want a kind of great read. <laughs> get someone inspired, get angry at the guy on occasion, you know, um, um, see, what, see what he's preoccupied with, see how he um, um, turns things around and pretends that he's in conversation with a young disciple. Um, what's he worried about, you know? Um, in the background, is Nero going to have his head? Yes, he will. <laughs> he he will chop it off very soon, or or demand a forced suicide. So I, you know, you don't have to get into all the details, but I think reading texts is terrific, and that's a good way of of becoming enlightened and sort of practicing stoicism in some way. So I guess I'll wrap up today with. Uh... Uh, in the conclusion sort of area of your book, you talk about, can a Stoic be psychologically healthy today? Um, and how do you feel about that question? Do you think, do you think uh, Stoicism is, is, is a good life hack to feel psychologically healthy? Do you think it's, it's one step on the long road towards good psychological health over time? What do you think? Yes, yes, and yes. But if, but I come to it with a, a, a slight um, inflection. And the inflection is we think about the ways that the Stoics teach us to take in the world through impressions and, um, and uh, a sense, as they say, to impressions. 
and to say no to some of the ones that come in too fast or are distorted. And that, so they teach us in a way to think slowly, Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist might put it, regarding some of the habits we have of thinking fast. Some we need to survive, but others are just filled with, oh, habits of personal bias that we're not even aware of, but that we walk around the world caring and we see through the lenses of those bias. So picking up on that and understanding how we can use stoicism to, if you like, both um, adjust our lenses a bit better and, and reassess some of the values on which our, you know, which we focus on through our, um, those lenses, that would be a really healthy way of proceeding. And I think also remembering that, um, the Stoics, um, often in, in a new and interesting way, pick up on Aristotle's idea that we are by nature social animals. And social animals um, for the Stoics mean connected throughout the world in a global way. We've seen better for better or for worse that we are living together as a global community. To get by in this pandemic at all, we've had to depend on supply chains that have come from all over the world. We've had to develop vaccines that depend on science from all over the world. In the United States, where we're not very good at sharing science um, in our various um, academic dominions, we've learned, best scientists learned that, that we've got to break down those barriers and start being able to share science whether through the National Institutes of Health that can do it in a better way or in the way that National, um, National Health Service and it, uh, has done it in Britain, the Medical Research Council in Britain. So we, we've learned the global community that we're in for better or for worse. And I'd say for better. And that's a stoic lesson. And it's a stoic lesson, you know, for going forth, um, um, as Seneca put it at the end of On Anger. Um, um, essentially um, let us embrace our humanity and that's a global humanity. Nancy Sherman, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. And uh, we'll ask our listeners to go forth themselves and uh, they can certainly find your book available now. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure, Adam. Appreciate it very much.